Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good morning. I'm Emma Moore, Research Associate on the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. CNES is committed to bold, innovative, and bipartisan research that drives national security policy forward. Thank you all for joining us in this rollout event for our Massachusetts Veteran Needs Assessment, which was published in December 2020. We thank Brighton Marine for their support of the report in this two-part panel today. First, I will turn it over to Research Assistant Natalie Grogan to present our findings from the Needs Assessment, and then we'll have a moderated panel discussion starting at 1230. We're going to drop the link to the report in the chat and there will be time for questions at the end of the presentation of findings. So participants don't forget your questions and feel free to use the chat feature or the Q&A box ahead of time. I'd like to remind all participants to maintain a civil discourse towards other attendees and the panelists during today's event. And without further ado, Natalie, take it away. Okay, thank you, Emma. Welcome to everyone logged on to this webinar. My name is Natalie and I'm a research assistant in the Military Veterans and Society program here at CNAS. And I look forward to presenting our research findings and recommendations to you all. Thank you to Brighton Marine for your support of this needs assessment and to my co-authors on this report, Kayla Williams, Emma Moore, Danielle Lazarowitz and Elizabeth Howe. While the specific research is geared towards veterans in Massachusetts, the information surrounding veterans experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic has nationwide relevance. This presentation will follow this displayed format. I will touch on the report's framework and context to lay the groundwork. Then I will present and examine our findings. Finally, I will go through the recommendations for supporting veterans through the challenges of COVID-19 as outlines in the needs assessment. The recommendations will be geared towards veteran serving nonprofits, policymakers, and civilian community leadership. This needs assessment focuses on all veterans living in Massachusetts and documents outcomes dating before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. The report focuses on four life domains, health, housing, financial stability, and social support. Members of the military are very diverse and are drawn from every corner of the nation, serve in a wide array of jobs across the different branches of service for varying lengths of time, and transition back into civilian life across the country for a variety of reasons. The needs assessment covers the varying life experiences of veterans across lines of gender, race, generation, location, and age. The main takeaway from the report and this presentation is a series of recommendations for veteran serving nonprofits to support veterans and transitioning service members during the challenges present during the pandemic, as well as underlying obstacles that were present prior to COVID-19 and that will be present afterwards, although in possibly significantly altered ways. Let's get started through a little bit of audience participation. Please write in the chat what you expect veterans to have faced during the COVID-19 pandemic in just a few words. I'll give everyone a few moments to contribute. 
can see a variety of topics, isolation, housing insecurity, food insecurity, healthcare challenges, job loss, financial hardship, legal problems, depression, difficulty accessing care. Thank you. Thank you to all who participated in this chat. It just goes to show how many issues are connected throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you. This report followed a mixed methods approach using four primary lines of effort to collect information, an evaluation of existing literature and publicly available data, phone interviews with key stakeholders in Massachusetts, phone interviews with veterans living in Massachusetts, and quantitative analysis. CNAS conducted qualitative analysis on the experiences of veterans in Massachusetts through reviewing policy papers, reports, academic analysis, and survey results from sources, including the federal government, state government, local government, a variety of nonprofits serving the veteran community in Massachusetts, local advocacy groups, and universities. For the overarching framework, the research focused on four life domains that affect veterans in transition and beyond, health, housing stability, financial stability, and social support. As demonstrated in the graphic, each of these domains are interconnected. Poor health can harm your financial stability, financial instability can lead to housing instability, inadequate social support is linked to poor health outcomes, and so forth. While these life domains were interconnected prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the ongoing public health emergency demonstrated the significance of those connections since COVID-19 severely impacted all four life domains in both singular and interconnected ways. The outreach portion of the needs assessment had just begun in March 2020 when COVID-19 hit the United States shut down major metro areas and put an end to any travel plans. If as planned, CNAS had traveled to Massachusetts due to the time and travel constraints, we would have conducted focus groups in Boston and up to two additional smaller cities, in particular Lowell and Worcester. Our transition to phone interviews forced by the COVID-19 pandemic instead of the planned focus groups allowed us to broaden our geographic reach through participants from more localities than we would have been able to physically visit. The increased geographic reach balanced out with recruitment and scheduling challenges during COVID-19. We conducted interviews with 17 stakeholders, subject matter experts, and community leaders at the state and local levels. We interviewed stakeholders, including civil servants at the federal, state, and local levels, advocates in the veteran serving space, and leaders in various nonprofit organizations. Additionally, CNAS interviewed four members of the board of directors and five residents of the residences by Brighton Marine. CNAS conducted interviews with five collaborative organizations at the national and regional levels. Finally, we conducted phone interviews with 27 local veterans from multiple cities and towns in Massachusetts. Represented localities included Boston, Worcester, Melrose, Westboro, and Cambridge, among others. Outreach to veterans was conducted through social media notices, as well as working alongside organizations and community advocates 
to broadcast the interview opportunities to their institutional email lists and to post physical flyers. The pivot to virtual interviews presented challenges in recruiting participants from all categories. The process of advertising the call for interview participants, connecting with interested parties, scheduling a time to conduct the interview and completion left several stages for interviews for individuals to drop out of the process. Because of these constraints, fewer interviews were conducted than desired. However, due to the challenges facing veterans and their families during the pandemic, including but not limited to childcare, remote learning, isolation, and a reliance on technology, interviewees may not be fully representative of the Massachusetts veteran community. The absence of planned site visits and on the ground data collection due to the cancellation of travel made the perspectives of local stakeholders and leaders gleaned from interviews that much more valuable. As across the country, the veteran population in Massachusetts is declining, both in population numbers as well as per capita. While the veteran population is shrinking nationwide as the large cohorts of veterans who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam age and pass away, the decline is more dramatic in Massachusetts than nationwide. According to VA estimates and predictions, the Massachusetts veteran population will decline 3.5% by 2045, compared to less than 2% for the nationwide population. The reason behind the decline of the veteran population lies in the generational changes between the veterans of conscription era conflicts and the shift to an all-volunteer force that has conducted some subsequent military conflicts. The aging population of veterans is quite significant for the experiences of veterans during COVID-19, as the pandemic is most dangerous for those over 65 years of age. The relative and absolute decline of the veteran population is not the only way that veterans in Massachusetts differ from their counterparts in other states. Overall, the general veteran population skews older and more male and more white than veterans nationally. Veterans in Massachusetts are also more highly educated and have higher household incomes than their veteran counterparts nationwide. They are slightly, accordingly slightly less likely to be receiving VA disability compensation and are less likely to be receiving a VA pension. Assuming that the percentage of lesbian, gays, bisexual, and transgender veterans in Massachusetts are roughly equivalent to national estimates, there are likely nearly 20,000 lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender veterans in Massachusetts, although these figures may be low since other research indicated Massachusetts has a higher percentage of LGBT residents than most other states. Now that we've covered some basics on veteran demographics, let's jump into our findings about how veterans in Massachusetts are faring across the life domains. There isn't time to go over every single outcome, and we will be focusing on some highlights across the four life domains. These findings will be Massachusetts specific unless noted otherwise. First, we'll begin with how COVID-19 has affected the veteran community. Between the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020 and today, more than 25 million cases have been confirmed in the United States with nearly 440,000 deaths. Both numbers continue to climb. The effects of COVID-19 have reached beyond simply public health, especially impacting economic activity and social relationships. 
veterans have experienced the pandemic alongside their non-veteran neighbors. Individuals 65 years of age and older are at higher risk for COVID-19, meaning the disproportionately older veteran community has been significantly impacted. According to a survey by the American Legion, nearly 30% of veterans have had their lives majorly impacted as a result of the pandemic. According to the VA, at this point, it has recorded over 215,000 COVID-19 cases among its patients and staff and nearly 10,000 deaths nationwide. Impacts of the pandemic on Massachusetts veterans have largely tracked with those of veterans nationally, with the fallout expected to continue for at least the next 12 to 18 months, particularly around mental health, isolation, and financial security. While stakeholders interviewed by CNAS did not feel that the impacts of the pandemic have hit veterans significantly harder than, non, than their non-veteran neighbors. They raised concerns around unemployment, homelessness, food insecurity, and mental health, increasing for veterans who were not facing these challenges prior to the pandemic. Isolation among older veterans was of particular concern. Beyond the immediate health risks, the pandemic's effect on VA operations has impacted the veteran community in other ways. VA was forced to cancel more than 11 million appointments nationwide from March to June 2020. While veteran unemployment rates were as low as 3% during 2019, the pandemic impacted the veteran community in ways similar to the general population, and veteran unemployment jumped to nearly 12% in April of 2020. Veteran unemployment was slightly below unemployment in the general population, which experienced nearly 15% unemployment at the same time. The most recent unemployment data from December 2020 shows the veteran unemployment rate at 5.5% compared to nearly 7% in the general population. The employment rate changes are promising, but have not yet returned to pre-COVID-19 levels for either the general population or veterans and are not expected to return for some time. While stakeholders reported a large drop-off in those seeking support, Massachusetts organizations have provided services straight through the pandemic. Proactive outreach across the country is of prime importance to reach veterans who aren't asking for help when they need it. The Massachusetts community has supported the veteran population during the COVID-19 pandemic in several ways that have applicability for nationwide veteran support organizations. For example, Brighton Marine distributed iPads to veterans residing in long-term residences for Massachusetts veterans, soldiers' homes, to connect residents with the outside world, which boosted morale. Additionally, in May 2020, the Massachusetts Military Support Foundation's Food for Vets program used Gillette Stadium to distribute 1 million meals to veterans and their families facing food insecurity. Important areas for assisting veterans during COVID-19 include healthcare, community support, unemployment, financial security, and education. Stakeholders interviewed by CNAS expressed the severity of the situation on the grounds for Massachusetts veterans with an explosion of food insecurity among families and communities that had never before struggled with affording food. To support veterans facing financial difficulties due to the pandemic, the state of Massachusetts removed bureaucratic hurdles 
to make it easier for veterans to apply for the Massachusetts specific Chapter 115 benefits, which provide up to $1,400 per month for food, housing, clothing, and medical care. As a result of this change, reports of a tenfold increase in visitors to the online benefits calculator indicated a demand surge for the program among Massachusetts veterans. Food insecurity among veterans is of course not limited to Massachusetts. Veterans serving organizations across the country have highlighted food insecurity among their members as been exponentially increasing problem since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Unemployment has hit both veterans and the spouses of veterans in millions of cases, removing one or more incomes from a veteran's household. In Massachusetts, the COVID-19 outbreak at Holyoke Soldiers Home drew national media attention and management at the facility is now being investigated by the Department of Justice. By early April, 28 veterans from the home had died from COVID-19. That number exceeded 70 by the end of the month. The soldiers' home crisis was brought up in multiple interviews and stakeholders described the situation as foundational and striking at the veteran subpopulation at most risk during the pandemic, elderly veterans. Veterans' homes across the country have faced the dire impacts of COVID-19 among their residents, patients, and staff. Even those veterans with stable sources of income and housing are impacted by the mental health implications of self-isolation. More than half of veterans under the age of 55 indicated a need for mental health resources during the pandemic. While veterans in Massachusetts indicated a positive healthcare experience at the VA, that is not always the case nationwide. Even veterans who do not become infected with COVID-19 may have to seek out medical care or assistance for unrelated medical conditions, exposing themselves and their families to COVID-19 at healthcare facilities. Both physical and mental health conditions have gone overlooked during COVID-19, both in the general population and the veteran population. Nationally, healthcare has ranked as the top resource need of veterans. This population is disproportionately more at risk for severe COVID-19 impacts short of death. Nearly half of all veterans over the age of 65, which is the age group that has comprised over 80% of coronavirus deaths in the United States. Mental health resources are also experiencing a surge in demand. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America has seen a 25% increase in calls to its rapid response hotline for veterans experiencing a mental health crisis. Calls to the VA crisis line climbed 12% by the end of March 2020 and have remained there. The Cohen's Veteran Network reported that half of post 9-11 veterans sought mental health care during the pandemic. The Mission Continues has reported high numbers of veterans seeking care related to depression and isolation. While not necessarily reflective of the veteran experience everywhere in the United States, they suggest that mental health concerns are prevalent among many veterans communities during this pandemic. Massachusetts has some of the most robust healthcare coverage in the nation, which was echoed by our interviewees across the board. Veterans benefit from statewide provision of healthcare, while eligible veterans also benefit from robust VA healthcare. States with lower levels of public healthcare support may experience challenges not present in Massachusetts. 
Veterans in urban areas such as the greater Boston region reported good care and were largely satisfied, while veterans in more rural parts of the state noted greater distance, although distances in Massachusetts are significantly shorter than in some other regions of the United States. These findings were echoed by veterans seeking care both for COVID-19 and unrelated medical conditions. Some veterans expressed a desire for expanded mental health coverage, particularly when it came to post-traumatic stress disorder. Others thought the stigma within the military and veteran communities were bigger barriers to veterans seeking care other than a lack of availability. Veterans indicated that there is room for improvement in VA mental health care providers and counselors, both in accessibility and availability. Veterans interviewed highlighted that COVID-19 has made it much more important that mental health care be accessible and stigma-free, yet expressed doubt that it would happen quickly enough for it to be relevant during the current pandemic. Women veterans expressed in interviews that women-specific medical care was harder to access both in the VA system and outside, as well as before and during COVID-19. Massachusetts, particularly Boston, has a notoriously high cost of living. The 2018 CNBC study ranked the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as the third most expensive state to live nationwide. Affordable housing has become an even more pressing issue during COVID-19, as millions of people faced unemployment and underemployment, putting their housing at risk. Even with ev eviction protections for COVID-19, veterans have struggled along with the general population to put together enough funds for back pay of rent for when eviction protections expire. These issues will vary across the country in states that have lower cost of living in Massachusetts, as well as different regulations surrounding evictions during COVID-19. Veterans in Massachusetts were uniformly supportive of efforts to improve affordable housing in the state and nationwide service providers indicated that Massachusetts had a reputation for difficulties in affordable housing. While in absolute terms, the number of homeless veterans in Massachusetts is low, was estimated at 900 individuals in 2019, Massachusetts has a higher share of the nation's homeless veterans than it does veterans overall. Nationwide, veterans for whom disability compensation is a primary source of income reported facing challenges obtaining suitable rental housing in a timely manner, given the competitive nature of the market. Veterans experiencing homelessness are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 due to a lack of healthcare options, pre-existing conditions, and a lack of access to basic hygiene and sanitizing methods. Financial stability includes how veterans function in terms of career, employment and unemployment, income and wealth. Leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, Massachusetts veterans have had relatively better economic outcomes as compared to veterans in other states, particularly around household income. According to, to census data, veterans across the country had significantly higher income than non-veterans. During COVID-19, veteran unemployment shot up enormously in March and April 2020, up to a high of 12%. While the unemployment rates have lowered since then, they are not yet at pre-pandemic levels and are not expected to do so for some time. Veterans and their families have struggled with the follow-on effects 
of pandemic un underemployment and its effects on their financial stability. As mentioned earlier in the presentation, food insecurity is a very significant problem for veterans that have never before experienced that level of financial hardship. As I highlighted in the framework earlier, life domains are interconnected. Financial stability has an enormous impact on quality of life in other areas. Employment, housing, health, and social functioning are made much more difficult without a baseline of financial stability. COVID-19 has impacted so many aspects of daily life and a lack of financial resources due to unemployment spirals into other life domains. It's important to note that most of the veterans interviewed by CNAS did not feel any worse off than the general population. In fact, most indicated that they were better off in the case of COVID-19 than the general population due to the availability of the VA in case of, of the loss of employer-sponsored health insurance and the pre-existing support network for veterans in need of financial assistance. A greater proportion of veterans in Massachusetts are in the labor force as compared to veterans nationally. Yet veterans in Massachusetts prior to COVID-19 had approximately the same unemployment rate as their peers nationally. Overall, veterans see proportionately higher incomes as compared to non-veterans in more rural parts of Massachusetts. In these regions, veteran annual incomes are on average at least $10,000 higher than those of non-veterans. In more urban areas such as Boston, the wage premium narrows to an average of $3,000 annually. Massachusetts has a reputation for being a veteran-friendly state as demonstrated by interviews with both stakeholders and local veterans. Most veterans interviewed expressed how their veteran status was neither a positive nor a negative factor in seeking employment most of the time. However, veterans highlighted that the main issue for veterans seeking employment in Massachusetts is a lack of awareness surrounding the military experience. Employers don't always understand many aspects of military life and culture relative relevant to a job applicant's qualifications, such as transferable skills from military careers, ranks and responsibility levels, and the necessity of relocating every few years for service obligations. In previous generations, employers and hiring managers would have had firsthand experiences of military life or personal connections with veterans. Presently, very few understand the lives of veterans. During COVID-19, when job seekers are competing against a drastically larger pool of applicants, this lack of understanding puts veterans seeking unemployment at a disadvantage. Social support for veterans can take many forms, including affinity groups, community integration, family and interpersonal relationships, support groups, and veteran-serving nonprofits, such as veteran service organizations. Overall, although interviewed veterans indicated a welcoming and positive atmosphere in their local communities and state, many also reported a desire to integrate more fully into their communities, especially those recently separated veterans who missed the strong sense of belonging they experienced in the military. Some stakeholders also highlighted a generational divide between the veteran community and the general public, indicating military-affiliated families feel isolated from a distant society and have difficulty bridging the gap. Service-level sentiments such as bumper stickers, the common phrase, thank you for your service, absent any deeper personal connection, 
and public support limited to holidays such as Memorial Day and Veterans Day were emphasized in interviews as emblematic of a deepening civil military divide. Of course, traditional avenues of social support have been dramatically affected or eliminated altogether due to COVID-19 and public health measures. The shutdown of avenues for social support has significantly contributed to mental health problems in veterans and their families. Additionally, the classification of COVID-19 as a war was reported to have alienated many veterans who were interviewed by CNAS. Most veterans who were interviewed expressed a preference for opt-out information and outreach instead of opt-in, as there's so much that isn't known outside of word of mouth. These veterans indicated that a change was underway due to COVID-19 that would probably remain for the foreseeable future in terms of seeking assistance. Younger veterans also have different needs than older generations. Childcare availability is a prime example. Younger women veterans are most likely to be the primary caregivers for young children, but shifting family dynamics may mean many veterans would benefit from support in this area. During normal times, on-site childcare can allow more people to participate in programming and receive healthcare. The high cost of full-time childcare can hinder efforts to enhance education or seek employment. While COVID-19 has impacted the options available to congregate or provide childcare, the desire remains, and it is of prime importance to pivot to virtual social support. Veterans that we interviewed highlighted the stigma of seeking support being a sign of something being wrong with them and highlighted that established groups were associated with trauma and stress. Several interviewees indicated that their lack of familiarity with veterans groups and organizations stemmed from their own misconceptions, but didn't know how to change them or join an already established group of people. Outreach and awareness of opportunities to connect to other veterans and gain social support are more challenging in rural areas such as the western parts of Massachusetts. The often isolated rural veterans may lack transportation and don't have access to the quantity or quality of social support available in the more populated areas of the state. Veterans and stakeholders alike spoke positively about the number and variety of resources available to support veterans in Massachusetts. A common theme in interviews was that the challenge is not a lack of resources, but difficulties in raising awareness of them, particularly during COVID-19. It is common for veterans to talk about the fire hose of information to which they are exposed during their transition out of the military. Few are able to remember all resources that were mentioned when or if challenges arise at a later date. Similarly, many individuals do not retain information about nonprofits that are able to meet niche needs if they are not experiencing that need in the moment. COVID-19 has drastically impacted student veterans as well, yet the virtual learning was reported to be a relative success in CNAS interviews with student veterans in Massachusetts. When interviewed, veterans, leaders, and stakeholders recommended a variety of actions and changes to better serve the veteran community in Massachusetts and nationwide during COVID-19. These range from policy changes and adapting to generational shifts to targeted solutions specific to an individual subpopulation, demographic or life domain. A major takeaway from this research 
is the need to reformulate how services and benefits are communicated and advertised to the community they are meant to serve. Outreach and awareness spans all categories and audiences. The changing demographics of the United States, Massachusetts, and the US military require changes in how veterans are served. The population in mind when big six veteran service organizations were founded is no longer the overwhelming makeup of the veteran population. Societal changes such as family structure, technological advances, industry expansion, and generational shifts need to be taken into consideration when assisting veterans and their families to thrive in Massachusetts and around the country. Direct engagement on a granular level is required to identify the shifting specific needs and circumstances of veteran subpopulations, including but not limited to religion, sexual orientation, and gender identity, ethnic identity, and skill category. This is essential in developing a tailored and proactive approach to veteran support and outreach, particularly during a time of crisis such as the COVID-19 pandemic. Our first group of recommendations is directed at veteran serving organizations with several different tactics. One size does not fit all for the diverse veteran community and a variety of outreach tools is necessary to best serve the community. Many veterans and their families are experiencing severe financial strain for the first time and don't know how to ask for support. Enable veterans to opt out of information instead of requiring veterans to proactively opt in. Post 9-11 veterans in particular communicate very differently than previous generations and technological and social media outreach should reflect that to reach out to the newest veteran generation. Diversity among the veteran population cuts across multiple measures including urban rural veterans, generational and other demographics. Subpopulations may need very different forms of support to thrive. Especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, families may be in urgent need of childcare and school learning support, whether they work in or out of the home. One-on-one -on -one discussions or virtual town halls with community members could identify the most pressing needs and ways to fulfill them. Older veterans who no longer qualify for the GI Bill should be made aware of the tuition waiver at state colleges and universities and provided housing assistance if necessary to facilitate upskilling and reskilling. Veterans with service-connected disabilities and those with other special barriers to employment should be connected with disabled veterans outreach program specialists and American job centers to develop an individual employment plan. Direct financial assistance is of the most use to the most people especially with the ongoing economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. Our conversations with veterans during the research gathering phase of the report highlighted the ever-changing financial needs facing individuals and their families during the ongoing pandemic, and that strings attached to financial resources overcomplicates an already stressful situation. Case managers well-versed in niche programs for veterans should provide veterans with the most support with the least necessary knowledge and work to avail themselves of the resources. Be aware of non-veteran specific resources in your communities. Veteran serving organizations and staffers should stay informed and maintain a spreadsheet or directory of the general resources available. By diversifying the veteran resource landscape, community collaboratives that increase a network of veteran service organizations will bring the Commonwealth's veteran landscape closer together. The second slate of recommendations is directed at legislators and policymakers. Massachusetts is one of the few states without clearly defined state level mental health resources. And the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated the importance of mental health 
and the risks posed to the veteran population. As a common barrier to service, language barriers get in the way of the veteran service officer in every town convenience offered to Massachusetts veterans. Family members of veterans are often caregivers and communication is essential. States across the country should examine the language offerings to support veterans. Difficult navigation processes that require applicants to travel between physical offices and request multiple forms from multiple sources ultimately serves as a deterrent to individuals unfamiliar with the various governmental agencies and without the time resources to devote to untangling the process. COVID-19 and social distancing measures serve as important reminders that travel poses risks for vulnerable populations, including some veterans. We aimed our final slate of recommendations at civilian community leadership. It's important to remember that veterans live in the community and are eligible for non-veteran specific assistance programs. Staffers and organizations serving the general population should keep a directory of veteran specific resources to assist clients when necessary. Veterans without pre-existing social networks are at a disadvantage when securing affordable housing, a problem certainly experienced outside of the veteran community. An online portal for interested neighbors and service providers would jumpstart that process for veterans in Massachusetts and across the country. Thank you to all of the attendees for your interest and time in our findings about the report on veterans during the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a few minutes for audience questions before the panel discussion, and I'm happy to provide any additional information. There's a question about the income barrier that blocks many area veterans from accessing VA care because their household income exceeds the congressionally imposed income limitations. Yes, uh, it was challenging to address the income barrier because as most participants in the webinar would be aware, the income limitations would have changed significantly during 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic and individuals barriers may have changed drastically limiting their accessibility to VA care. So it was something that in individuals that participated were interested in determining their eligibility. However, at the time of publication, the process had not yet been, had not yet been resolved. Thank you for the question. In terms of family problems, such as veterans seeking a divorce, children's support, and so on, legal problems were mentioned during veteran interviews. However, they were not the number one issue that was reported in terms of financial security and food, food insecurity. I can respond to this question by saying that the veterans who were implicated in family problems told their interviewees that the spiraling, the spiraling uh, problems in terms of housing, um, healthcare, and financial stability significantly impacted their relationships with their families. Uh, a financial insecurity veteran would have many more challenges when going through a legal divorce. And so the report does not specifically highlight legal family problems, but they were reported as a only follow-on effect related to financial insecurity. The report does give data on where the veterans were from in Massachusetts. I highlighted Boston, Melrose, Westboro, Cambridge, and Worcester. 
but there were several other places and they were highlighted in the report. There's no more questions, then we'll give everyone a few more moments. Thank you for a question about the RANDS Corporation did a Massachusetts needs assessment. It was prior to COVID-19, and so the results were significantly different just due to the circumstances surrounding Massachusetts veterans. I will say that CNAS did not intend to duplicate the RANDS assessment. Um, the RANDS Massachusetts veteran needs assessment was very helpful in establishing a baseline of resources available to Massachusetts veterans. Since the, since the issues facing Massachusetts veterans were so significantly different in 2019 than in 2020 due to COVID-19, um, the results are almost impossible to compare directly, but we did use the data to establish a baseline. Thank you for that question. Direct financial aid has always been a problem in some circumstances. However, right now, financial troubles for veterans that were reported in the study were listed as being almost overwhelming when organizations put strict strings on their support to veterans. So in a time of crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic, direct financial aid is the best solution when faced with so many competing challenges. However, the stakeholders interviewed did express that direct financial aid is not always the best answer to all issues, but during this specific instance, it often is. Thank you for the question. Mental health issues in Massachusetts were reported as significantly related to COVID-19. Of course, some veterans would have had mental health um, care issues prior to COVID-19, as well as individuals in the general population. However, the the stresses of the COVID-19 pandemic associated job loss, um, domestic, domestic disturbances, and um, social isolation compounded the issue for the veterans that we interviewed. Individuals expressed a unwillingness or un, un, either unwillingness or inability to seek mental health care during the pandemic as they were unaware of virtual offerings. And so what was reported to us was a expansion of mental health problems, people seeking mental health, but unable to adequately address it due, due to virtual issues with technology, privacy sometimes. And so what is foundational for Massachusetts veterans was seeking out ways to address mental health challenges while maintaining their physical health during COVID-19. There was a question about the impacts on rural veterans as opposed to ones located in more urban suburban areas. This is uh, an interesting question. There were two, two types of veterans really that we interviewed at the course of the needs assessment. As anyone who had been following the COVID-19 pandemic would have been made aware in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was when we were mostly conducting these interviews, cities were the hardest hit. And so veterans living in cities in Massachusetts and more populated areas 
were hardest hit by both cases of COVID-19 and associated closures and public health emergency measures. Those in more rural communities may not have been experiencing COVID-19 in the same way, but their economic situation was also uh, a factor and job opportunities in rural parts of Massachusetts were less available than those in more populated areas such as Boston. We have time for a couple more questions. The findings about Massachusetts versus other states, since the report was focused on Massachusetts, we did not specifically research veterans who were hit by COVID-19 in other states. However, there's variances among all states in terms of how COVID-19 affected them. Massachusetts veterans indicated that they may not have been hit harder than other states because they had a higher standard of living than other states due to veterans experiencing higher incomes than veterans in other states. However, that certainly changed during the during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a question about challenges facing a state where the veteran population is on the decline. Part of the needs assessment focused on county level comparisons and data predicting the population of veterans later in, um, in five years or 10 years compared to the general population. As I highlighted, the, due to generational changes, veterans are shrinking as a percentage of the population, even as the general population increases. Some of the challenges include a increased competition for resources as the veteran population will make up a smaller percentage of the population than it previously did, both decreasing in numbers and also decreasing in the people working in the state among organizations and resources available that are familiar with the needs of veterans. And so there is an increased need for veteran service organizations and leaders to advocate for veterans in their community. And a follow-up answer to that question is that the population of veterans that remain is changing. Um, veteran population is diversifying a great deal. Women veterans are the fastest growing veteran population and their needs are different than the veteran population that was envisioned at the beginning of many of these large veteran service organizations. We have time for one more question. Sometimes veterans would not be able to access care because their income is too high, which disqualifies them from using VA care. That was indicated in several of our interviews. However, even when it is a, even when it is a significant hardship, the individuals that we spoke to um, highlighted that the largest problem was awareness of other resources, that the VA was an option for them, but they did not primarily rely on the VA. We have a couple more minutes for questions and then we will take a brief pause in between sections of this event.
Thank you, Natalie, for that fantastic rundown of the report with attention to issues veterans have been facing during COVID. So to everyone who's participating, we hope you'll all stick around with more questions while we take a brief break to convene our panel. We will see you at 1230. Good afternoon for those of you joining us now. I'm Emma Moore, a research associate for the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. We're gonna kick off the second section of today's event. Um, and I'm very honored that two distinguished members of the Massachusetts veteran community have agreed to make opening remarks. Representative Seth Moulton and Massachusetts Secretary of Veteran Services, Cheryl Poppy, have generously agreed to speak. Rep. Moulton has represented the 6th Congressional District of Massachusetts since 2015 and sits on the House Armed, House Armed Services Committee. Rep. Moulton served in the Marine Corps with four tours of Iraq, while Secretary Poppy was a, served for 30 years in the Massachusetts National Guard and continued in leadership of the Massachusetts Department of Veteran Services for 12 years. Um, she was appointed secretary in October 2020. So without further ado, we'll share their, their initial remarks. Hello everyone. I was honored when Brighton Marine reached out to me to speak today. The Massachusetts Veteran Needs Assessment Report reveals some pretty stark statistics. For many of us, they quantify a story with which we are already too familiar. There are too few mental health resources. There are too many veterans dying in the parking lot of the VA. Too many veterans in long-term care facilities are dying from the coronavirus pandemic and too few are getting a vaccine. As I read the report, two numbers really stuck out to me, 11 million and 3 million. The first, 11 million is the number of cases the VA canceled between March and June. Imagine that for a second. That's cancer in your lungs going from stage one to stage four. That's a nagging mental health issue turning into a mental health emergency, 11 million times over. And 3 million? That's how many of those 11 million canceled appointments received no follow-up, no rescheduled date or way to seek alternative care. That's unacceptable. In sum, this report sheds light on the mountain of broken promises between you and the country. But within this report, there are also a number of reasons to remain hopeful. First, the report itself is part of a broader dialogue about mental health. While this country faces a national mental health crisis, we are starting to respond. And this report is proof of that. The silver lining about this pandemic is that for the first time, all of us are thinking about our mental health care together. Veterans are no longer alone in their fight for better mental health options. The average American is starting to gravel, grapple with what it feels like to be isolated. In our isolation, we have found the resolve to tackle the stigma surrounding talking about mental health care. That gives me hope for our country, where getting mental health care should be as routine as getting your annual physical. We're getting there. Last year, Congress passed my plan to make 988 the national number for mental health emergencies. It's now law, and within the next year, everyone in the country will be able to dial 988 and get mental health help when they need it. 
Another figure that gives me hope is the number of vaccines the VA has been able to get into people's arms across the country. This report shines a bright light on the problems we are facing because of the pandemic, but I'm optimistic that the pandemic will end sooner because of how well the VA is getting vaccines out right now. Veterans in Massachusetts are going to get immunized faster than everyone else in our state, and that gives me hope. And finally, I'm hopeful about the fact that we have leaders that are taking this pandemic seriously. Here's a figure that's not in the report, 100 million in 100 days. President Biden has promised Americans that he will get 100 million Americans vaccinated in his first 100 days, and right now he's on track to do it. The only way we are going to tackle the problems this report identifies is by getting through this pandemic and working together on the other side. I believe President Biden, when he talks about veterans and his commitment to honoring his son Bo's legacy, I'm confident that the president will step up to the plate and fight for veterans in his son's memory. These past few months have opened more eyes to the specter of our collective mental health crisis than at any point in our country's history. This new report reveals terrible and terribly important statistics. But do not for a second lose hope in America's ability to meet the challenges it lays out. I haven't. And I promise you that we will use this moment and the chaos it has created as an opportunity to make some major changes for the better. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for inviting me here today to share some words with all of you. I would like to take a moment to share a special thank you to Brighton Marine Health Center for the outstanding work they do to provide some of our most vulnerable veterans with many different resources to ensure there is assistance provided to those who have sacrificed so much for our country. From their scholarship program, to their Homeless Veterans Housing Fund, to their actual construction of affordable, permanent, supportive housing for veterans and families, we at the Department of Veterans Services would like to thank you for your ongoing commitment to the greater good of our veterans right here in Massachusetts. Most recently, we saw this personally with your donation of iPads to veterans in our two soldiers' homes and other veterans in the community. This was a tremendous bridge to help prevent social isolation in the veterans community that could result of the need for social distancing during our global pandemic. We at the Department of Veterans Services look forward to continuing our ongoing partnership with you to address these important issues. As many of you know, the Department of Veterans Services proudly serves the over 300,000 veterans of Massachusetts to empower and support those are who are in need. And like Brighton Marine, a very major facet of our operation at DVS is to ensure that those veterans needing assistance are reached out to and provided financial assistance or temporary or long-term housing. This is possible through organizations like Brighton Marine. To do this, we partner with local veteran service officers in every community, assisting our local veterans by exploring the many veteran benefits that are available to them on both the state and federal level. 
And in addition to having veteran service officers in every community, the Department of Veteran Services operates a financial assistance program, an annuity program, two soldiers' homes, two veterans' cemeteries, the Women Veterans Network, and the statewide advocacy for veteran empowerment program, better known as the SAVE Team. The Women Veterans Network serves as the central resource for our women veterans in Massachusetts. Women veterans are the fastest growing demographic of veterans returning home from service. This statistic makes it all the more important to dedicate a major portion of our department to meet the needs of our women veterans. The Women Veterans Network also strives to provide information on federal, state, and local benefits to women who have worn the uniform. This includes an annual conference hosted by the network, bringing veterans from across the state together as they learn about new benefits to which they may be entitled. The Women Veterans Network is fitting to Massachusetts because believe it or not, the first female veteran is from Massachusetts, Deborah Sampson. Deborah disguised herself as a man to fight in the Revolutionary War. She is also known as the official heroine of Massachusetts. And to honor her legacy, DVS awards a woman veteran of Massachusetts with the Deborah Sampson Award each year to recognize a woman veteran who has gone above and beyond her female veterans in service to her country and in her community. The statewide advocacy for veterans empowerment program serves as DVS's frontline to the veterans in our local community. The SAVE Team mission is to advocate for those who are not able to get benefits that they're entitled to due to personal or institutional barriers, real or perceived, that they may face. And they prioritize suicide prevention and mental health distress in their mission. To accomplish this, SAVE acts as a liaison between veterans and families to provide a guiding hand in navigating the sometimes confusing process of obtaining the services that might be needed. They also partner with our state departments of public health, our departments of mental health and the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services and the trial courts to find specialized services and programs for our veterans in the Commonwealth to meet any unique needs they may have. As I mentioned earlier, addressing veterans homelessness is a key component to the services that are offered through the department. This endeavor is no small feat. And as I mentioned, we cannot do it with without organizations like Brighton Marine serving as a physical location of hope and progress for our veterans who need housing and supportive services. On behalf of the Massachusetts Department of Veteran Services, I want to thank you all once again for gathering here today. And thank you once again to Brighton Marine Health Center and all of our providers for the work that you continue to do. And thank you for conducting this needs assessment with the Center for a New American Security. I hope you all have a safe and warm rest of the winter season. DNS is proud to continue its work improving veteran outcomes through our needs assessments and are honored that Representative Moulton and Secretary Poppy took the time to review this work. Once again, I'm pleased that CNES is able to host today's discussion on these vital issues, and I'd like to introduce our moderator, Rosie Cloud. Rosie is a director at Brighton Marine. She was previously assigned to the White House National Security and Domestic Policy Councils as the Director of Policy for Veterans, Wounded, and Military Families. 
We are excited to leverage her significant work and experience today. And with that, I hand the introduction of our esteemed panelists over to Rosie. Emma, thank you so much. And thanks again to all of the CNAS team, Kayla Williams, Natalie, uh, all of you worked so closely to make this Massachusetts report a success. With that introduction, I want to pull us up from Massachusetts into a national perspective. And I'd like with that to welcome all of our participants here today and specifically our panelists that bring forward not only a local but national perspective. We all recognize that government plays a significant role. However, COVID has truly called to action both philanthropy and mission-focused organizations to rise to the occasion in addressing COVID issues and specifically in meeting veterans where they most need us. Today, uh, I will be navigating our panel conversation and would like to give all panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves, but a little bit of housekeeping before that. Uh, I will leave for all of the participants here today about 10 to 15 minutes at the end for question and answers. Uh, we will have, please feel free to use the chat feature and the Q&A box to capture any types of questions that you may have throughout the course of our structured conversation. I do ask that we maintain a civil discourse towards each other, our attendees and panelists. I think we all agree that we all share a deep care and united commitment to those serving our military and veteran community. With that, without further ado, we do have a fantastic panel today. I would love to begin by giving each panelist an opportunity to introduce not only uh, their perspectives with some opening remarks, but I'd like to one by one uh, call, them, call them forward to have that moment. Uh, Michael Allard, we'll begin with you. Michael Allard is joining us today. He is the COO of Homebase, an, org an organization dedicated to addressing mental health needs of veterans located in Boston, Massachusetts, but also an organization that has become a national model of excellence dedicated to the invisible wounds of war and providing first-class clinical care, wellness education and research. With that, Michael, I'd like to give you an opportunity for some opening remarks. Great, Thank, thanks Rosie, I appreciate it. Uh, great to see everybody. And uh, uh, just a, another thanks to, to Michael Dwyer, Brighton Marine and CNAS for being able to commission this important report and, and bring it to our, our audiences. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here this uh, afternoon. You know, we've, we've got an interesting perspective at home base, as Rosie pointed out, where <clears throat> we started off as a, uh, a program uh, serving New England and primarily really greater Boston, but uh, over the course of the past uh, seven years or so have really expanded to serve veterans from across the country and sometimes from across the world. And, and that has continued in, in various forms in a, in a post, uh, or I should say during COVID world, and we'll do so in a, in a post COVID world. So, so thanks for having me and uh, I'll, uh, I'll defer to opening remarks from the other panelists. Wonderful. I'd like to turn next to Pamela Johnson. She is the Veterans and Military Families Program Manager for Goodwill Industries International. She supports a network of 161 autonomous community-based organizations in North America. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pamela. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. I am very excited to be a part of this panel. As you alluded to, um, our mission at Goodwill is to make sure that every person has the opportunity to thrive. A major part of that mission is ensuring that every service member, military veteran, and family member receive the support they need to help them get from where they are today 
to where they want to be tomorrow. Uh, one of the initiatives that I support, uh, which is called Operation Good Shots, it's um, funded by the Walmart Foundation, gave us an opportunity to really dive deep um, over the last three to four years to really tackle um, uh, veteran issues when it comes to employment. Um, we've been doing this for over 100 years. Uh, we were one of the first uh, uh uh, we was one of the first organizations that received a VA uh, grant um, after World War One, and we're going to continue to do this work. So we really are excited to really dive deep and share some of our effective practices with the panel. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here and ready to get started. Thank you, Pamela. Uh, and next, I'd like, it's my pleasure to introduce Christina Kaufman. She is a chief executive officer and co-founder of the Code of Support Foundation. During her 11 years as a wartime army wife, Christy has experienced firsthand the various barriers that between those who serve and the resources designed to support them. She founded Code of Support with Vietnam veteran General Alan Salisbury to remove these barriers. And frankly, I've had a wonderful bird's eye view to seeing what her organization has been able to do leading both with tech and collaborative spirit. So welcome, Christy. Thank you so much, Rosie. And hi, everybody. Really excited to be on this panel and also send my deep thanks to um, CNAS and Brighton Marine for, for making it happen. Yeah, as, as Rosie alluded to, it's, um, Coordination of services, we heard that during the presentation. Um, it really doesn't matter how much is out there if nobody can find it. And I think that the Coda Support Foundation, that's really what, what our um, wheelhouse is. We coordinate and connect effort with people and with technology. We were fortunate to get a, um, a big grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation several years ago, and now we're partnering with organizations like AWS and Google and Consumer Technology Association to really um, make sure that we're leveraging technology in a way that makes sense, particularly during a pandemic. Uh, we saw a 200% increase in applications to Code of Support since last March, and we've seen a doubling of the amount of people using Patriot Link. So we know that there is a big need uh, for people to be able to connect to resources. Again, particularly ones that may not necessarily be veteran specific, but are filling the need. And we'll talk a little bit more about food insecurity and how we saw the uh, impact on searches in, in, um, in Patriot Link. But super excited to be part of the conversation. Thank you, Christy. Uh, next, uh, Dr. Uh, Meg Harrell. She is the Chief Program Officer at the Bob Woodruff Foundation. She formerly served the Obama administration as the Executive Director of Force Resiliency within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. She re was responsible for the office's policies oversight pertaining to sexual assault prevention, suicide prevention, diversity, inclusion, and equal opportunity, personnel safety, uh, and was a deep collaborator with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome, Meg. Thank you so much, Rosie. And thank you to Brighton Marine and the Center for New American Security. I'm thrilled to join you today. I'm looking forward to this discussion. And I'm really happy to represent the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Um, the, the Woodruff family founded the foundation when um, Bob Woodruff was the um, ABC News journalist that suffered an incredible wound um, while deployed and embedded with U.S. Army forces in Iraq. That was 15 years ago last month. And since then, the foundation has continued to emphasize our mission to ensure that all service members and their families and caregivers have the opportunity to thrive after service. 
2020 was a very different year for us, for the organizations that we partner with, and for the community that we serve. And I really look forward to the opportunity to discuss that today. Thank you, Meg. And last, but certainly not least, Michael Dwyer, the CEO of Bright Marine. Um, through his leadership, uh, we have had an opportunity within the organization of Bright Marine to not only develop and provide superior health care for military uniformed beneficiaries, but through his leadership, he has also uh, shepherded the, the first and largest uh, mixed income housing initiative uh, since World War II. Hello, Michael. Hi, Rosie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for moderating. Um, it's really been a pleasure for me to work with CNS over the last nine months uh, on this report. And, you know, it's a very timely and important conversation we're having today. Um, first, I just do want to thank my board of directors for supporting our outreach uh, to CNS to have the needs assessment. Originally, it was going to be a uh, milestone report with some benchmarks on a new strategic effort, but we did pivot, as you heard earlier from Natalie, uh, during COVID um, to really earmark a specific point of time in Massachusetts. Um, I'd like to also um, express my thank you to Seth and Cheryl for uh, participating. I thought their words were fantastic. Uh, as Rosie alluded, uh, for the past eight years, Bright Marine has been involved in uh, affordable housing on our campus. Uh, we have an innovative model uh, with 102 veterans with all mixed income. And then we just put in place, um, Secretary Poppy mentioned at 25, uh, formerly HUD VASH um, uh, recipients. And we're looking to, um, I think the goal, if I could say from the whole team, as well as man management as board is, it's less about brick and mortar. It has to be a focus on upstream supports, both clinical, behavioral health, uh, wellness, navigation, as uh, <clears throat> uh, Chrissy said, it's, it's, it's continuing the problem. So we wanna to continue to be the hub of services and I look forward to everyone's uh, thoughts uh, during this report. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I'd like to begin and really touch base on an overarching theme that has really emerged in COVID. I think early in 2020, philanthropy across the board came together trying to anticipate, and I don't think any of us could really anticipate the devastation that was gonna really cut across America, cut across all our communities as COVID. But there was a significant deliberate conversation that happened with philanthropy with regards to how it would respond. And you know, it is no accident today that we have a blend of forward-leaning organizations and also uh, grant makers and philanthropy because I do think it's important to have this conversation. And Michael and I have always discussed that some folks decided to take a knee, others didn't. And, and I'd like to talk initially to both the Bob Woodruff Foundation and Goodwill Industries and, and open up with you and talk about what was on top of mind for you. Because my guess is that not only your board, but your organization had to really think differently about how it would respond to COVID. I'd like to open up with Meg and then, and then turn to Pamela and then we'll open it up to the rest of the panelists specifically around how did COVID create a mental pivot for you? Thank you so much, Rosie. And that's such a huge issue for us. So early in 2020, um, we took action. We published an April paper about the projected COVID impact on the veteran military community. And we used that paper not only to um, share and alert the, the landscape really, but also as the basis for our own decision-making. 
Um, some really important context here, the Bob Woodruff Foundation is a public foundation. And by that, I mean, we raise what we grant. We don't have um, a big endowment or corporate wealth that is, is funding this. We raise money and that's, those are the funds that go out the door. And we knew early on, as did everyone, that 2020 was going to be a very challenging year to raise funding, um, that, that revenues were likely to decrease. Even so, Ian-Marie Doherty, our CEO, um, Bob and Lee Woodruff, and our amazing board, General Martin Dempsey and others, um, decided very early on to emphasize our mission over potentially our own organizational well-being. Um, we exist to ensure that veterans thrive after their service, and we don't help veterans by keeping our money in the bank and waiting for a sunny day. So in 2020, we granted a record amount to help organizations keep their doors open and to serve the military and veteran community. And we changed a lot of things about our grant. We changed the timing of them. We changed the amount of them. We changed who we granted to and what we grant for. And um, as a huge issue, we changed the amount of risk we were willing to accept in those grants. Um, I, you know, I'll pause there for now, but happy to come back to any and all of those points. Thank you, Maggie. I do think this theme might cut across so much of our conversation today. Pamela, would love your thoughts on, on this from Goodwill Industries perspective. Well, Goodwill pivoted quickly to the significant challenges posed by COVID-19 through the modifications in how we deliver services to veterans and military family members. The first change that Goodwill's pivoted from is in-person services to virtual services. This means instead of meeting in person, Goodwills went to virtual coaching calls and switched from hard copy intake form, forms to digital forms. People completed support services online or by phone. Second, in-person trainings went to virtual trainings for job seekers to access digital skills training through platforms such as Skills to Succeed, GCF Learn Free, or credentialing opportunities with local community colleges, partnerships with Google, and onward to opportunity. Third switch was from in-person job fairs to virtual hiring events to connect veterans with employment opportunities for our employer partners. It is very important that everyone we serve felt supported and empowered during these difficult times. We will continue to learn and, and meet each other where they are at. Um, in addition to that, we uh, included a mission um, start guide. And the mission start guide was really, was really uh, developed uh, together as a network. And we wanted to make sure that we um, included effective practices in there to how we can continue to uh, prepare the organization to open up and open up safely. And also to be able to look at other ways that we have to serve in this new environment. Um, the future of work is digital skills. So just like I believe um, Christy mentioned early on, we um, partner with Google. Um, Google was able to support us with, um, with some um, trainings to our veterans. Uh, we also partner with USAAA. Um, they was able to really um, provide us with, uh, a fun uh, with funding to really support veterans through this pandemic. Um, just like uh, Meg mentioned earlier, it was it was it was it was different in uh, size. Uh, the the goals were different um, as it pertains to more performance based. It was really to support so everyone can transition and be ready post COVID. So it's been a learning year. We're continue to evolve. 
um, and align ourselves with uh, what the future of work will look like for veterans and military families, which is digital skills. It's not going to go away. So we want to make sure we include that in the forefront um, as we continue to move forward. I'd like to open it up and, and maybe ask uh, Christy and then Michael Aller to talk a little bit about what your um, experiences in pivoting with COVID, you know, how those impacted your specific organization. Let me let me begin with Christy and then I'll move to, to Michael Aller. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. So um, I think that there have been some silver linings that we've talked about a little bit from COVID. A couple of things for us that, in, that, that had an immediate impact. Meg mentioned the report that they did around the impact that they saw coming. That was so important for us as a nonprofit that also raises funds to be able to actually use that report to back up what we were seeing in our own organization. To have a, uh, you know, another nonprofit and particularly a funder be able to say, look, this is going to be an issue. This is, and, and, and be able to show that increase in our own was really helpful in us getting additional funding. I think our, our model, our service delivery model has always been virtual. Our case coordinators work virtually. PatriotLink is a virtual platform. So whereas initially, I think sometimes some, some partners and particularly government partners were really hesitant to kind of go that way, particularly when it comes to transition. I mean, in the year 2021, the fact that we don't have a technology platform supporting transition is crazy. Right. So I think that now we've had a lot more interest from the VA and DOD and some of our partners that were a little bit more uh, risk adverse to virtual uh, service delivery. Everybody at this point knows it can be done. Right. And Pamela talked about how they pivoted. So we didn't really have to pivot much in our actual delivery because we were already doing it that way. Um, what we have found is making sure that what we're coordinating resources, that we are keeping up with the goodwills of the world, understanding that they are now virtual so that when we're making connections and we're connecting people via uh, Patriot Link or case coordination, that we know that these additional capabilities are around. Because one of the worst things to do when you're working with somebody or giving someone a technology platform is to give them outdated information because they just get really frustrated and that's where we lose a lot of folks. Once they call one or two organizations and it's hard enough to call in the beginning just to say that you need help. If you are told, I'm sorry, you don't qualify or you know, call this number, call that number, you lose them. And I think that's where we, uh, we lose a lot of people going through the cracks. So what we saw in um, Patriot Link early on was a huge uptick in, in the searching for food. That is not something we traditionally saw in Patriot Link. We're able to, to respond really quickly, do a mass import of all the food pantries across the country, tag them with where they are and quickly get them into the hands of veterans. I think that, that the technology piece of, of our service delivery and our as a sector going forward is, is paramount. And I think we can get better at it as an organization, certainly, but as a sector, and just be open to the fact that everything is now happening virtually. Um, and troops, veterans, and families are okay with that, right? You know, and, and always being able to have an option, right? If VA is an option for you, whether or not it's because you don't qualify, then we're always going to find another option. For the most part, the help is out there. It's just about getting the person in front of the right help at the right time. So building momentum, because I'm, I'm keeping notes of what everybody's saying, you know, board engagement, the, the ability to change risk tolerance, speed in decision-making, 
uh, being willing to change your, your delivery model to be more tech enabled, the role of partnerships with other organizations. All right, building off of that, I'm gonna to turn to Michael Allard. So tell me, tell me how all of these different dynamics play into home base and how uh, potentially we can continue to add to this list. Yeah, so for, for home base, you know, what as the first and one of the largest private sector programs in the US that are dedicated to healing the invisible wounds of war, um, there was some opportunity as well as some challenges uh, that came about as, as a part of this crisis. Um, the opportunity, and, and it comes in for us, I think three particular areas, it's clinical care, it's wellness, and it's the uh, training institute that we run for um, clinicians across the United States. And so in, in the clinical arena, you know, telehealth, of course, has been around for, for a long time, but, but it has not been widely adopted. And one of the things that um, we knew, but, um, but couldn't quite get there pre-COVID is the fact is that it can be very effective. And so, you know, at home base, when, when the crisis hit in mid-March, we were well positioned to switch into telehealth and, and really interestingly, it was really the faculty members and the clinicians that had the hardest ability to adapt to telehealth previous to COVID than it was for our, our uh, patients and, and our veterans. And that's because of historically the way in which folks were trained, uh, ongoing uh, training capabilities. And so this really was a forcing action for uh, all healthcare to be able to adapt in that community. And, and it's gotten exceedingly well. I mean, at home base, it was essentially about a 24-hour flip before we were able to switch uh, towards uh, our, all of our telehealth activities. Um, interestingly, during that time, and, and for some of you may know, uh, myself, along with uh, our executive director, my good friend, Jack Hammond, and 40 of our staff members were actually asked by the governor of Massachusetts to help stand up the uh, Boston Hope uh, a field hospital for COVID positive patients. And that was uh, really from April through June. And it provided us uh, a really interesting window into what was a reopen for our national programs, which were closed uh, from uh, the March timeframe through the end of June. And, and um, for us, what we know is while telehealth is incredibly effective and, and some of the restrictions uh, for state licensing regulations have been loosened a little bit, those restrictions are going away. And there still is a need for in-person clinical care uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them, chief among them, is, is really complex situations. And so um, based on the learnings and, and the experience out of the uh, Boston Hope experience, uh, we were able to reopen very safely in July. And, and that really um, allowed us to move beyond geographic barriers. So the report um, that we all just heard you know, Western Mass um, tends to be an area in which it is often underserved. And that's uh, primarily because resources aren't as um, available out there and it's geography. And of course you move even beyond the Massachusetts borders. This is very, very true. Your access to uh, different uh, uh, centers of excellence is, is very limited. So within our national programs, which are essentially our two week intensive clinical programs, you can fly in from wherever you're living in the world and receive uh, essentially two years worth of treatment into those two weeks. And so while the digital world is here to stay, I, I, you know, part of our learnings are you still have some in necessary in-person and then how do you adapt to those in-person learnings? Um, 
The other uh, quick points I'll make is um, not every nail needs a massive mallet. Uh, we need tack hammers for some things and we need sledgehammers for others. And so, you know, when we think about wellness and mental health, you know, there's gotta be different approaches. It doesn't always have to be the most extensive intervention that clinical uh, or medicine has to offer. And so for us, we, we very quickly uh, arrived at a series of what we call our Operation Health at Home uh, series, uh, which is a combination of about 329 video blog entries covering nutrition, fitness, uh, resiliency, or mind-body medicine, and, and yoga. And, and particularly for those months in which everybody was shut down, these were something that we could offer to our community. And it's really short segments, right? So attention span, we're all sick of Zoom, you know, being able to deliver these quick uh, interest points that may lead to better practices in our lives. And so that, that was incredibly important for us. And then the third and, third and final piece within our training context, we, we train clinicians all across the United States and being able to deliver evidence-based treatments, understanding uh, invisible wounds. Um, one thing that we've begun to focus on more closely, however, is those underserved communities. And really for us, uh, partnering uh, here in Massachusetts and then initially and then beyond with our federally qualified health centers who are in the communities. And frankly, they're serving veterans and veterans of color in ways that um, we as nonprofits haven't really fully utilized. And so. Uh, for home base, we've we've begun partnering with our um, FQHCs, um, and particularly, I just like to give a good shout out to the Harvard Street Neighborhood Health Center for their work and the programming that they've done with veterans. And so, um, you know, there's always national learnings, but as Tip O'Neill said, all things are local, and, and you got to start with sort of those local gems and figure out how you can understand their learning, their needs, and partner with them. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, and with that, Michael, Michael Dwyer, you're up next, you know, I setting the stage for what COVID was like for Brighton, you know, we were in the middle of opening up brand new residences as COVID was spiking across the country and specifically in our backyard. Plus, we also were finding a tremendous amount of need in veterans homes with regards to uh, technology connective tissue. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that meant for Brighton and how Brighton's approach or response to some of those challenges became actually opportunities potentially for us with Google and other you know, partners? Sure, Rosie, thank you. Um, I, I will echo uh, my colleagues on the panel that uh, telehealth was not at a forefront, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, until the pandemic. And we did, as you heard from CNAS, the authors, it was a difficult to get scale on the report um, because we started the report, or we had a shift, obviously, during COVID. Yes, we started um, onboarding uh, new residents with our residents in January. Um, that brought, we had a pivot. It really brought some issues. Um, everyone was more concerned with just stability. And so we had a pullback on creating a sense of place and unity and trust. And that's really what the communities need. Um, but we, uh, we did pivot and we hired uh, two in-house. Um, one, our partner, Wind Development, hired a coordinator of services. Um, and we also hired one for ourselves. And we have about 16 practitioners in the mental health field on our campus as tenants. And we made sure um, and they educated us on their means for telehealth and so forth. Um, 
the other circumstance, and I know sure, uh, Secretary Poppy mentioned it, um, we were concerned, um, Massachusetts in particular had some horrible news with our long-term care facilities, both soldiers home. And working, Rosie, with you, you gave me direct contact in the Apple and we talked to number three in Apple and we bought about 450 iPads, discounted, uh, brand new, and we issued in different times um, through our board and through our partners, uh, about 245 of them split between the Chelsea Soldier Home and the Holyoke Soldier Home. And again, they're just a moment in time. We were very concerned with isolation and we wanted to bring obviously the social communication aspect, but we also wanted to um, maybe add to the telehealth aspect because loved ones were not allowed to enter these facilities or any other facilities in the state of Massachusetts, much like the country. So I think that was really important. And, and finally, I, I think um, we had developed through the board, Rosie, as you know, back in 2015, we established a Bright Marine Homeless Veterans Fund. And the fund essentially um, was a discussion we had with veteran services leadership at the time in Massachusetts saying that they were barriers to rental housing. Men and women who served, raised their hand, had a HUD bash or some other uh, subsidy. And they just, whether it's stigma or just money, just couldn't um, gain access to reliable um, rental housing. And so we have funded up to, you know, $2,500 of first and last month's rents, moving costs, you know, the cable bill and the water bill paid. And I think that that has expanded. We added from March 220 to currently, we have 55 new veteran families in. And since 215, we've put in 422. And it's not ourselves, it's a lot of hands. And one of my comments that I think we need, I need to focus on is to grow those partnerships. We have a terrific partnership with the VA Healthcare in Boston that vets all those veterans and we pretty much just wire money under, under the certain program. So I think that is terrific. And I do echo uh, Christy, we have a homegrown, well, somewhat homegrown um, virtual network. And I do think that's here to stay. Um, my last comment would be, um, we have a unique situation or actually a great situation that we have um, men and women VSOs, prominently former veterans who are maybe retired that are in, in every town or any uh, cluster of towns, that's service veterans, they're walk-ins. And now they have changed into that virtual habit. And I think, and I'm gonna, Mike and I have a conversation this week. I think one thing I missed, and we think for next steps, when another tragedy comes, maybe not at this level, is to create a level of emergency fund. Uh, collective impact with nonprofits, don't ask the government to give us any more money. And then when the VSOs, the 351 VSOs throughout the Commonwealth have a need based on a structure because we'll run out quickly, we should really have that direct financial assistance and that immediate impact. So I think I'm gonna join partners on this phone as well as my conversations in Massachusetts to really have that public policy um, conversation and then make it happen uh, by the fall. So thank you, Rosie. So I'm keeping an eye on Tom and I know we wanna leave plenty of opportunity for Q&A towards the end. So I'm, I'm gonna to pivot to a couple of, our, of the questions that are specifically around uh, needs and observations around subpopulation of veterans. Uh, certainly, there has been a disproportionate impact uh, through the pandemic and the economic recession on subpopulations across America, 
that cuts and intersects with veteran subpopulations as well. I'd like to open it up for a conversation to the, to the panel with regards to what are some specific exigent or emerging needs that either surprised you or you felt compelled to respond to simply because the severity, specifically in the veterans population was so significant? I'll jump in. Um, at the Bob Woodruff Foundation, we have a network of communities, over 100 local communities where we have a local partner. And what we've traditionally done with them is help them understand the, the principles of collective impact to increase um, their effectiveness and their efficiency in their community serving veterans. Um, what we haven't done before 2020 really is provide um, direct funding to all of our partners. And we started doing that this summer. We provided stimulus um, checks to all of our local partners. And in turn, we heard back from them about the needs they were seeing. And one of the things that, that really stuck out to us was how many of them were addressing food insecurity. And specifically, when I think about our, our partners in Arizona who were serving um, in the Native American veteran population, they were seeing such extreme impact from COVID um, with need for food and for water and for water collection and water holding. And um, that's a subpopulation that I think didn't really receive um, the attention to it potentially until this year. And their need has been extraordinary. Thank you. I, I want to build on what you just said. You know, COVID trends have also shown um, an increase with regards to untraditional responses to things like recession, where you normally have safe haven and education, training, other types of opportunities. When you have an economic recession, the pandemic has drastically changed that. We're seeing across the country this term lost generation where you've got young children literally falling out of school because of closed close sessions, you've got a 26% drop in enrollment across the community colleges where you would normally see an increase for communities, Black and Latino communities. Um, how have transitions, in your opinion, for military and veterans been impacted by COVID? Because certainly they cut across, whether it's military spouses, the military members themselves, um, they're con they continue to transition, whether or not there's a pandemic happening or not, right? Their, their movements are still in motion. So I don't know, Christy, Pamela, if you have any observations based on your direct support as well. Yeah, I think that we saw that particularly early on when, you know, the, the government's not nimble, everybody knows that. And so I think what we had to do when people were, transition classes weren't, weren't happening for a while, right? People were still getting out, but they, the transition classes weren't happening. And so then it took the government a while to kind of pivot to um, being able to deliver TAP type of programming, um, you know, to, to folks getting out. So we, what we saw in that 200% increase, about 30% of the population um, is in some kind of crisis in the military veteran sector, right? I think Pew came out with that several years ago, and we, that's certainly been borne out with us. And that's can be behavioral health, financial, what have you. 90% of our cases have a financial um, emergency attached to them. And what we do is we peel back that onion during the intake process and we say, okay, obviously we need to address this financial insecurity. You're about to be evicted. You're, you know, you, your, your car is about to be repossessed or whatever it is. 
But what we have found is once we're able to, to leverage finances on their behalf, then we can get to some of the bigger issues that led to the financial insecurity in the first place. So that's kind of our regular model. What happened during COVID is that you had a significant part of the population that was getting by, right? They were just getting by month to month, like a lot of America. And then the spouse lost a job, particularly if it's a caregiver, and they, there's no way that they could have put their head, you know, had their head above water. And so that cohort joined the traditional kind of cohort in crisis. And that hasn't gone away. You talked about kids being um, homeschooled. That's hard enough in a, you know, regular household. When you're working with a caregiver and with a veteran who's got lots of challenges, we've seen a, um, a dramatic uptick in crisis in that area, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, between domestic situations and you know, food insecurity, we don't see that going away anytime soon. We are having a conversation now about you know, making sure that we are reaching those subpopulations. One of the things that we have found a lot lately is language as a barrier. And we're not just talking about Spanish. We, we recently um, hired a um, bilingual case coordinator, which is great. But we had a situation with a, uh, a veteran who was a translator himself who spoke Arabic, but he had a traumatic brain injury. And so we were trying to communicate with his mom, who was his caregiver. And it was, you know, I had to go to Facebook to try to find, you know, someone who could translate um, Arabic for us in order for, for us to give this guy the care that he needs. So we're seeing all kinds of like, what seems to be one-offs, but is not turning out to be one-offs, right? We are a little bit challenged in terms of data collection. We're having this conversation now about asking about things like race or culture, right? I mean, like, you know, there's enough barriers to trying to get people to work with us in terms of stigma. We, we are always looking at ways to be able to give people the opportunity to share as much information as they want without creating questions that are gonna be a barrier to them getting that care. And that goes for both case coordination and Patriot Life. Let's see, that's helpful. Pamela, any, any thoughts? I know Goodwill Industry certainly, uh, familiar with housing, food insecurity, emergency assistance, what have, what have been your observations specifically in our community? So I'm, I'm going to echo Christy. So a lot of what we have seen um, here at Goodwill is the majority of the veterans that we have served have been, oh godly, have been uh, the largest population that lost their jobs. Generally, they are industries that were a part of the essential workers. So if you were a part of, uh, you know, leisure or hospitality, retail or healthcare, you were the first in many cases to be laid off or to be underemployed. Um, so what we did was we made sure that we was intentional about um, following up, engaging veterans, because we know when life happens, you're not going to always call your uh, uh, career navigator or your employment specialist, whatever titles we use um, for our organizations. Um, so we wanted to make sure that we had a, mul a multifaceted approach. Um, just like Christy said, we use LinkedIn, we use social media, uh, text messaging, uh, we use a lot of forms of um, communication to make sure that we provided support um, because we knew life happened. Um, many cases, just like uh, Christy mentioned, you know, kids are at home. Um, and the majority when kids are at home is either the mother that's there, if she's single parent, 
like a woman veteran or it's a family. So we wanted to make sure that um, while kids are at home, uh, we provided child care assistance, especially to assist women veterans or even um, male veterans with the ability to really focus on looking for a job. Just imagine you're trying to, you know, coach your children and help them with homeschooling schooling, and tackle all these other things. So we wanted to make sure that we provided resources that they need, of course, in addition to food, um, food insecurity and also with housing. But it was very important that we provide them with the basics. Um, um, with just like many of the organizations here, we have, we develop an ICFP plan. The ICFP plan is an individual and career financial plan, just like Christy mentioned. We really tackle the, the, the core needs. Let's get down to how can we remove the biggest barrier for you so you can really focus on getting back on your feet. Um, what does that look like for you? So um, good, well, we're continue to um, focus on that. Um, we, we just seen a, a huge uptick in minority veterans, of course, um, come back to our um, come back to our job connection centers. So we wanted to make sure that we addressed a lot of the, the healthcare needs uh, that they was having. Uh, of course, we're, we're an employment service provider, but we wanted to make sure that we streamlined that a referral services. Um, if they was in need of um, needing um, employment benefits, a lot of veterans was having challenges with that. Really have an instructional way to do that through the communication, jumping on a Zoom call. Um, just like I mentioned early on, we just went totally digital. Sometimes folks didn't have, you know, a cell phone anymore. So we partnered with uh, companies that provided um, assistance with that. Uh, we um, partnered with Comcast Essentials. They provided um, computers and uh, low cost um, internet services. So we really wanted to make sure that we had a bucket list of resources to pr um, provide services to any subpopulation during this time of crisis because it looks different for women veterans and it looked different for African Americans or Latino Americans. So we wanted to make sure that we was intentional, person-centered in delivering services to them during this time. And Rosie, Pamela said something really important that I think was said also during the presentation where you've got folks who are working on the ground and a lot of them aren't veteran military specific and even if you are in the military veteran sector, trying to navigate through all the resources is almost impossible. That's why we created Patriot Link, so people could do that. But you cannot expect people whose job really isn't case management or case coordination to spend hours and hours on one client. That's not a realistic expectation. What you can expect if they have the right tools is to say, look, if you can't help this veteran, they have some responsibility to say, let me get you to somebody who can. And I think that's where we haven't done a great job and that's why we created Patriot Link. So they have a tool to do that. So, so I think, and I, we, we are down to probably seven minutes of Q and A. So, so uh, um, thank you all for, for taking the time with a lot of in, in thoughtful answers to this. I do want to pivot to some of the Q and A that it's been raised. Um, uh, opening up one of the comments specifically focused around this notion of a declining veteran population. The question was more specific around how do you as, a, as Massachusetts address this issue, but, but I think a valid point of how do you as a nation continue to keep veterans issues at the forefront when across the board you are seeing declining populations and in this environment where there are competing priorities, are there any 
I'm going to ask for folks to be rapid fire on this. Are there any suggestions or comments? I'll start with Meg and move across the six if anybody has any. What are your thoughts for continuing to make sure these issues stay top of mind? Top of mind and also um, one of the challenges we're facing in food insecurity is that there's not a solution, a lot of solutions that are specific to that community. So we're, we're exploring and hosting a discussion about not just how to keep them top of mind, but how to solve them uniquely when the solutions aren't unique. That's great, that's great. Anybody else? Yeah, I would, I would just add that um, this topic comes up a lot and across the United States, we know in the next 10 years, the overall veteran population is gonna be in decline. It's just not just in Massachusetts. But, but I think what gets conflated is that the need is also going to decline. And then of course, we know that is not the case. And, and we are dealing with a population that is all volunteer. And, and the VA's own numbers show that the utilization of services within the VA is significantly increasing over the years. So, so I, think, I think part of the conversation needs to be that it's just not numbers alone, uh, that, that there are significant needs and that um, those two almost need to be looked at with a much better explanation about what's going on. Great point. One of, one of the uh, uh, Participant also has voiced his question of, listen, virtual is not for everybody, whether it's a digital divide or you're living in a, a tech desert, right, a, an infrastructure desert. You know, most folks, especially if you look at the issues with regards to despair and a need for belonging, are looking for that human contact. How, how close are we to, to really being able to build that back into the fold at scale again and what, what, are, what are your thoughts around that connective tissue and that, that belonging that's created you know, by putting people with people? I think that person is absolutely right. The, 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 the problem is we don't really have those options right now in a lot of senses. So absolutely, we wanna give people as many options to come to the table as they're comfortable with. One of the things that we've seen in case coordination is typically we've been telephonic only. There's a lot of folks that now want to do Zoom. We let people communicate with us the way they want to communicate with us. If they are looking for in-person, let's say, um, uh, mental health care, and there's really nothing available right now in their area, then we just have a conversation with them. Yeah, guys, get it that you want to have an in-person thing. Not possible right now. Let's talk about some ways we can make this as effective as possible. That's really helpful when we have a peer case coordinator, all of our coordinators or peers to be able to have those nuanced conversations. But absolutely, as soon as we're able to do so, we want to be leveraging those resources as well. But we have found that a lot of times right now there is no choice. And so it's just kind of talking to the veteran and the family member and how they can be most comfortable accessing those resources virtually. And I think one of the shining stars does seem to be an aggressive vaccination um, positioned by the VA and by partners to really make sure that there is some level of, you know, assistance. And so I think it will continue to call on this national partnership, you know, both public and private. Uh, how important do you see public-private partnerships uh, playing a role within the veterans community as we tackle these issues? I mean, they certainly have been growing with, with, with regards to level of and you know importance over the last few years, but I, I almost feel like there's an opportunity to put them on steroids and make them very meaningful, right? Hey, Rosie, if, if I could jump in and maybe just answer your other question before I get the public-private partnerships, which are gonna be essential. Um, 
the bad news is we are going to be in a socially socially distant masked environment for at least another year. Um, and I and I think that's the reality that from a forward planning standpoint, we have to um, make plans for. Um, the good news is that um, there is the opportunity to get face to face if we can be safe and and you know consult the right medical advisors about how to do that. And so I think you know part of our message has been to figure out a way because there's always a way, but to do so in a very safe and and uh, medically oriented uh, manner. And so. Um, and I think we'll see more of that opportunity in the future. I think the vaccines will give us some additional um, sense of uh, protection, but it won't necessarily, at least at this stage, give us a sense that these, for those who are vaccinated, uh, that they can't um, transmit. That is, that jury is still out until we hear from the results of some of the research. Great. We're at literally at our last minute. So one one final word from from panelists with regards to partnerships and and hopefully ending on a positive note as we pivot back to our CNAS host today. Rosie, I have a comment relative to partnerships. Uh, as you know, Bright Marine doesn't deliver any direct services. We're a real estate organization. We're a landlord, and I think it's essential, whether it's virtual or in person, to continue breaking down the silos, that sea of goodwill that folks on this phone have written about, Megan particularly, about, you know, really, we can't do it alone. We have to really break down the public policy issues around the uh, private, public, nonprofit partnerships to achieve an impact. If we don't have our hand out and we just really want to impact our heroes and their families' lives, then we should just distill it to something simple than this big, you know, playbook. And I think we're starting to do that in Massachusetts slowly. And Michael's right that, you know, we can't forget the western part of our state and the demographics of both in West and where I live down in Cape Cod. And I really think you have to meet, as, as others have said, you meet your veteran where they are. And that's our job and that should be our mission. So thank you. Thank you. Emma, over to you. Thank you so much to both Michaels, Pamela, Christy, and Meg for participating in this really important discussion. Your expertise, passion, and thoughtfulness are incredibly valuable as we all consider how to support veterans in this challenging and changing landscape. Particular thanks to Rosie for framing the issues so thoughtfully and driving the conversation forward. For everyone who's called in today to ensure that you get the email when the recording of this discussion is released, um, and to learn about future events, go to cnes.org and click follow or follow at CNESDC. You can also reach out to us directly. Um, Natalie Grogan is available at ngrogan at cnes.org. Thanks so much to all of you for joining and have a great rest of the day. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.